As we go to prayer today, the first thing I want to do is talk to you about Fortress 91. Now that we are back in MECQ, we're starting back in Fortress 91, all campuses. Now, Mondays, we, we want the pastors to have some rest, all right? But Tuesday through Sunday, we'll have Fortress 91, all four campuses. It would probably be a good thing to call ahead, call to your district pastor and make sure it's arranged so that there's no crowd, no lineups and everything. We'll, we'll get everybody taken care of. If we need to do multiple locations, we'll do that. We want to make it simple, easy and convenient for you and your family to come have a little 10, 15 minute service and communion and prayer and then go home. Now, in addition to that, because of the curfews, we cannot have a Friday night service because we can't get everybody home on time and we can't have a Saturday night service at the normal time. But by tonight, we should be able to announce to you some new service schedules. Of course, on under MECQ, we're going to have the big drive-in things at South Campus. We're probably going to add some services and change some times on Saturday that will be both drive-in and in the buildings. And then, of course, the four Sunday services will continue with both drive-in and in the services. But keep your ears open for the drive-in, just the pure drive-in where I stand up and preach like an open-air crusade to cars on Saturday morning and pay, announce, pay attention to the announcements on Saturday. All right? So... We are moving forward, and we're very happy. And beloved, please, Hebrews tells us very clearly, Hebrews 10, that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. You need to be in church. Now, we'll run shorter services. We'll run services all day, every day, if need be. I mean, we don't mind hard work, but we do want you to be in the house of God. If there was ever in a time in your life that you needed to be in church, it's right now. Amen. All right, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, we lift to you all of our people today. Let there be no fear filling their hearts in the name of Jesus. Let there be just a simple rest of faith that flows from your presence, Lord. A simple rest of faith where your hand, they know that your hand is upon them, Lord. They know that your angels have been given charge concerning them to protect them. They know, Father, that you are watching over them and that you will never fail them or forsake them. Just let a simple rest of faith be upon your people today. And Father, the joy of the Lord gives us strength. I ask you for joy in the hearts of the people. This has been over one year now, Lord. This has been a long journey. Father, let there be joy. Not silly happiness, Lord, but joy. Holy Ghost joy filling the hearts of your people. Let their hearts throb and swell with joy, as your word says, breaking the fear and breaking the discouragement off of their souls. Let their hearts throb and swell with joy, Father, and let that joy give them strength, Father, strength in their physical bodies and strength within their souls in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for the finances of all of our people. Lord, if you would have told us last year at this time that we'd still be in this situation, most of our people would have been so discouraged. But Lord, you have met their needs all through this last year, and you're not going to drop them now. Father, let finances flow. Let the sales and the collections flow. Father, in the name of Jesus, for those that have lost their jobs, let new opportunities for work come into play. And Father, even higher salaries. And Father, in the name of Jesus, let there be no discouragement in their hearts. But Father, let there be a desire to work and that you will bless the work of their hands. 
We pray for all of the food producers in our land, Lord. We pray for all of our fishing fleets. Lord, in the name of Jesus, fill those nets with fish. Father, let there just be an abundance of fish filling the nets and filling the boats. And Father, I pray for the pig farms and I pray for the chicken farms. Lord, in the name of Jesus, no more plagues wiping out those pigs and those chickens. Father, let there be an abundance, an abundance of protein for our people. Father, let every vegetable garden, let every rice field, let, let, our, let our nation bloom and flourish, Lord. Flourish with food for our people. Father, I thank you for it. Lord, I pray. We don't have a lot of manufacturing taking place right now. But Lord, I pray for new contracts. I pray for new investment in the land. I pray for new jobs and new companies coming into the land that our people will come to full employment. So many of our overseas workers have come back home. Father, we need full employment, not just part-time jobs, Lord, not just piecework, but full employment for all of our people. I thank you for it. For the frontliners, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Oh, Lord, keep them strong. Oh, strong in their souls and strong in their bodies. And Father, I thank you for health, for health and strength in the bodies of all of our frontliners. Lord, for our seniors, Lord, in the name of Jesus, let their bodies be strong. Like Moses of old, they will not grow weak and their eyes will not grow dim in the name of Jesus. I thank you for it. Let your presence rest upon us. For every member in the hospital right now, Lord, with COVID-19, let that power, that thing be broken in the name of Jesus. Let that thing just weaken and die in the name of Jesus and let recovery begin. Lord, we can't lay our hands on them, but we're going to lay prayer on them. Let recovery begin. Let the power of the thing be broken and recovery begin in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Let's open up our hearts now to Joshua. Joshua chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Jobad, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Arshath, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Nathoth the Or on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom, to fight against Israel. So this is a great enemy. These guys figured out one of us can't beat Israel, so we're going to combine everybody together. Now that must have looked very intimidating to Joshua. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow, at this time, I will give, them, give over all of them slain to Israel. And you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now notice the time. For tomorrow at this time. Now, now here's a clue that you got to get a hold of in victory. Timing. 
he did not attack. No attack before the right time. Now, brothers and sisters, sometimes God tells you he's going to give you the victory in something. And he tells you when he's going to give you the victory. And you do a preemptive strike. And God looks at you and goes, no, wait a minute. I told you I'd give you the victory at this time. Learn to be patient. Learn to follow God. Here's the truth. Follow God. Don't ask God to follow you. Follow God. Don't ask God to follow you. If you follow God, you'll follow him into victory. If you ask God to follow you, he will be picking you up after defeat. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim, eastward as, valley, as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them and left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. See, God never wanted the people of Israel to never trust in horses and chariots. These were like the tanks of Joshua's day. He said, I don't want you to trust in that. I want you to trust in me. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. And there was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of those cities that stood on mounds that Israel burned, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, now notice, they stood on mounds, what we call today a tell. These were ancient cities that had been rebuilt in the same place for thousands of years. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the people, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now notice, Moses commanded his servant, the Lord commanded Moses, Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. So we have generational obedience. Now, now here's a great problem in leadership. This is a leadership issue. This is a leadership issue. God will teach a generation what it takes to be victorious. And then the next generation comes along and says, well, God didn't speak that to me. Yeah, I know it's in the book, but God didn't speak that to me. I know it's in the Bible, but God didn't speak that to me. Well, generational obedience will bring victory. Okay? There are things that I still do today, just like my grandfather taught me just like my Uncle Lester taught me, just like Dr. Cho taught me. You say, well, you know, you got to move on with the next generation. I move on with the Bible. You see, 
Brothers and sisters, you have to understand there are, there are principles that God gives us that we don't need to have spoken to us again. They're laid out there in Scripture. And we don't change them because this generation may not like them or this generation doesn't want to emphasize those things. They, they want to emphasize these things. Generational obedience brings victory. So verse 16, so Joshua took all the land. We'll call that generational obedience. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Rabbah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, they took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they would come against Israel in battle in order, this is purpose. Can you see that word in order? This shows purpose. That they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now there's a truth that you need to see here. Hard hearts. Hard hearts reveal. When you see people hardening their hearts, you have to understand hard hearts reveal future destruction. When you see people continue to harden their hearts, no matter what happens, they keep getting their hearts harder. Just back up because there is destruction ahead. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and from the, all the hill country of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. Now, these, these are giants, okay? The Anakim are giants, or the relatives, or relatives of giants. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This was the inheritance of the people of Israel. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, these are the kings of the land, whom the people of Israel defeated, and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan, toward the sunrise, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon and to all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled over Arur, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth eastward, and the direction of Beth Jeshemoth, to the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, southward, to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived in Astaroth and in Edri. Now remember, he was a, he was a giant with a giant bed, all right? King, this is Og, king of Bashan. He was a remnant of the Rephaim, who ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah and all Bashan, to the boundary of the Gershonites and the Machavites, and over half of Gilead, to the boundary of Sihon, king of Hishbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. 
And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side. Now notice we're on the west side of the Jordan, and earlier we have been beyond the Jordan. All right, so if you come with me in your mind, you've been with us to Israel, and we've driven down that long Jordan River Valley, and we get to where we turn left to go up toward the, the Salt Sea. And you turn right, you go up past Jericho into Jerusalem. All right, that whole area on the other side of the Jordan River, which we call Jordan today, that whole area was lived in by the half-tribe of Manasseh and Reuben and Gad. Now, then on the west side of the Jordan River, which is what we traditionally think of as Israel today, and verse 8, and in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gazar won. The king of Debir won. The king of Gedder won. <laughs> okay, these are all the kings. The one king each destroyed, all right? Verse 14, the king of Horma won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makadah won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Afek won, the king of Lasharan won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hazor won, the king of Shimron Meron won, the king of Akshva won, the king of Tanakh won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadish won, the king of Jachniam in Carmel won. The king of Daor at Naphath Daor won. The king of Goim in Galilee won. The king of Tizra won. In all, 31 kings were destroyed on the other side, on what we call the Israel side of the Jordan River today. And thus the land had peace and rest from war. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
Our New Testament passage today picks up in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. All right, so Jesus is telling them, this is a season of prophecy fulfilled. It, but now I want you to be careful. Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Not, not tradition, not the rabbis and their interpretations, but what God said would be fulfilled. Now, you have to be very careful that you understand the difference between prophecy and interpretation of prophecy, between prophecy and what people wish was going to happen. God will fulfill prophecy, but he will not fulfill people's fantasies about prophecy. Now, for instance, one of the things that the, the Jews truly believed about Messiah is that when Messiah came, he would sit on the throne of his father David and he would restore Israel to its place of world dominance, like it was in David's day and in Solomon's day. But that is not what the scriptures said. That is what they wanted. So understand, when, when you, you begin to talk about fulfillment of prophecy, understand there's a difference between what God fulfills and what God does not fulfill. He fulfills what was spoken by the prophets, not what was spoken by everybody's ideas. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. All right, this is... Jesus' future. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, he told his disciples that straight up. But now notice this next phrase. But they understood none of these things. They didn't understand anything about the mocking of the Savior, the shameful treatment the spit upon, the flogging, the killing, or the resurrection. They understood none of these things. Now, now these were men who walked with Jesus every day. These were men that listened to his teaching every day. These were men who loved Jesus with all of their hearts. These were men that laid hands on the sick and cast out demons, but they understood none of these things. This saying and here's a key, was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, now brothers and sisters, you're going to have to understand the principle of hidden truth. There is a principle in the scripture of hidden truth. And hidden truth is not, it's not because of sin, Okay. You, you, you always think truth is hidden because of sin, but, but it's not. We have no record that these guys were living in sin, but it was hidden. Now, the question is, why? And the answer is, we don't know. 
maybe because he knew that they could not take they could not take facing it he had to face his sufferings and death now it's one thing to be surprised by sufferings and death it's another thing to face it every minute walking into it knowing what's going to happen maybe they couldn't take it maybe like peter they would have said no lord that's not going to happen to you and it would have opened them to temptation to know this. I, I don't know the answer to that. I just know that there are times that God in his wisdom hides truth from us. And we don't, we don't understand it. We understand it later, but we don't understand it going in. It, <laughs> we understand it if, if this is the situation. This is going in. And this is coming out. We understand it on the other side. We understand it looking back, but not going in. And why God does that to us sometimes, I don't know. Maybe because he knows our hearts and he knows we couldn't handle the pressure, we couldn't handle the temptation or whatever. But you know what I've learned with God? I just obey, even if I don't understand now, I know that really messes people's brains up today and everybody says, no, 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 you can't do it. But I have learned in my short life that the Father loves me so much that I can trust him to walk through the fire. And if he tells me to walk through the fire, I'll walk through the fire. I may not understand why he wants me to walk through the fire, but I'll walk through the fire because I know he loves me. And I know it's going to be all right. And I know all things work together for my good. And I know it will end well. Now, on the other end, I've often found out that now I understand. <laughs> but I didn't understand going in. So please, trust his love. All right? Trust his love. As he drew near to Jericho, now remember where Jericho is. If this is the Jordan Valley... And over here is the Dead Sea. You can go hang a left or you can hang a right. Okay. Now, when you get down here, this would be Jericho. And then you go up here and this is the mountain on top of which is Jerusalem. Now, so Jesus has come through the Jordan Valley. He's now in Jericho and he's about to head up to Jerusalem. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired by what it meant. I mean, he's used to travelers coming by. That was a great place to beg. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. <laughs> I like this guy. But he cried out all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. Now, now, there's me, all right? I love this guy. Many times in my life, I've needed the mercy of God. And I have cried out, and people said, just be quiet. No, I'm going to cry out all the more. Have mercy on me. <laughs> See, there's one cry God always hears. And I've taught you this in sermons forever and ever. The one cry he always hears is the cry for mercy. And Jesus stopped and commanded. Now, notice he did not ask. He commanded him to be brought to him. Now, two things you got to get there. 
the plan of salvation stopped. This is a man who stopped God. Oh, I can't get my pen to work. This is a man who stopped God. The cry for mercy brings everything in the kingdom to a stop to answer the cry for mercy. Some of you this morning, you have no idea what you're going to do next. Right now, just lift up your hand and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, have mercy on me. Go ahead. Just lift your hands right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, have mercy on me. Go ahead. Do it again. Father, in the name of Jesus, have mercy on me. Understand, all of heaven stops for the cry of mercy. And then notice the word commanded. He wasn't going to put up with these attitudes of people. Tell that man to be quiet. Tell that, no, no, no. You bring him to me. Ah, God gets serious about the cry of mercy. And when he came to him, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> now notice, notice the, the shifts of personality taking place. Jesus stops. Jesus commands. People, that, people telling that guy to be quiet. Jesus got strong with them. But now when the man is brought to him, look at the tenderness of Jesus. Oh, I love this. The tenderness of Jesus. One of the most beautiful things in the scripture. What do you want me to do for you? Talk about a blank check. Jesus offered this man a blank check. He could have said, can I have a million? Can I have a house and lot? Can I have 50 servants to help take care of me? The man said, let me recover my sight. Now, folks, here's a principle of prayer. Always ask for the solution, not a symptom. The symptom of all of his problems is his blindness. Poverty is a symptom. Begging is a symptom. Bad clothes is a symptom. Separated from his family is a symptom. The symptoms of blindness are not the problem. The root is the blindness. So he didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for help. He asked to see. If he can see, he can work. If he can see, he can earn money. If he can see, he can get back with his family. If he can see, he can build a house. Always ask for the solution, not the symptom. Great principle of prayer. And he said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I love that. Your faith. Jesus didn't say my faith. And definitely not the faith of this crowd that tells you to stay away. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Now we are confronted with an issue. There are those that say, there are some that say, mercy 
equals, excuse me, mercy equals a lack of faith. That when you cry out for mercy, it means you have no faith. But here we have mercy equals faith. Your faith has made you well. So the cry for mercy does not mean that you don't have faith. The cry for mercy means that you do have faith. <laughs> and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Oh, I just love Jesus. He's so cool. Chapter 19, verse 1. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. Okay, so he's in this ancient city and he's passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, this needs, you need to understand, this would be a Roman collaborator and extortion. This, this man was corrupt. He was an extortionist, and he was corrupt. Oh, my pen. And he was corrupt on steroids. He was very corrupt, okay? And he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. Tax collectors worked for him. So he not only had his graft and corruption, he had a piece of all of their graft and corruption. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small in stature, he was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. <laughs> Jesus noticed. Now, Forgive me, but most of the rabbis would have never noticed the chief tax collector. If they did see him, they would pretend that they didn't and turn their head as if some unclean thing. And he hurried, came down, and received Jesus joyfully. Ah. But when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Oh, and Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold, half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now notice, this is a man who cared about Jesus' name. People were speaking bad against Jesus because of this man's former life. And he said, half of my goods, everything I have right now, 50% is going to the poor. And anybody I've cheated, I will restore it fourfold. Now, immediately, everybody is shut down because now they see when they saw it, they now saw change life. They now saw a changed life. Brothers and sisters, sometimes after Jesus saves us, after Jesus changes us, we do things 
because it's the right thing to do for Jesus's name. You know, in one sense, he could have said, well, now that I know Jesus, I'll just be better. But he said, no, I didn't get this honestly. I'm going to give this all back. He cared about Jesus's name. And here, here's a question I, I have for all of us as Christians today. How much do you care about what people say about Jesus? You know, do you shoot your mouth off on Twitter and Facebook and say all kinds of things and not care about how is that going to affect the name of Jesus? Do, do, you, do you always walk around and it doesn't matter how you do things because, you know, I can go get drunk and I can go do this because I'm saved by grace? Or do you care about the name of Jesus? I looked at a man one time and he'd been out for the adultery, had a second family, and he was a deacon in a church. And I said, you know, everybody knows you have a second family but me. I said, didn't you care about the name of Jesus? I said, didn't you think that you should do something to show everybody how changed you were? Why would you continue to live in your sin? Did you not care about the name of Jesus? To me, what are the great motivations for living a holy life and for living a sanctified life, a set-apart life for Jesus? Now, you're never going to please everybody. Everybody's going to always throw stones at you. Welcome to life. But in my heart, to live a life that I know is pleasing to God is because I care about his name. Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of David. This man was a Jew. He's a son of Abraham. Now, they saw him as a Roman collaborator. Jesus saw him as a Jew. He had a right to the gospel. For the Son of Man, and here's one of the great truths of Scripture, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Uh, Pastor Jamie was talking to me not too long ago, and a person had transferred to his church from another church, and they made the most fascinating statement. They said, I used to go to a church that had a stage. Now I'm going to a church that has an altar. I thought, wowzers. See, there's a lot in the modern church that is really different from Scripture. That's one of them. They have a stage, and it's an event place where everybody's just to come to the stage. Everybody is to come to the event. But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You see, it's not about inviting Christians to come to your event. And that's how, the only way some churches know how to grow. But it's not growing the kingdom. It's just growing their little event. I would like to challenge all of you pastors today. Don't go, around, don't go around trying to take people from other churches and our church is better than their church, so our church is more holy than their church. So don't grow by, by just grabbing people from other churches. You want to be like Jesus? Seek and save the lost. There is no shortage of people who need to hear the gospel in our beloved city. There is no shortage of people who need to hear the gospel in our beloved nation. There's no shortage of people who need to hear the gospel in this world. There's plenty of people to grow churches with. Seek and save the lost. We have to get out of the buildings. You have to get out of the event place. And pastors, forgive me, you have to get out of your little discipleship groups where you just have your little same group of people for the last 20 years together. And you have to begin to say, all right, what are we going to do? 
what are we going to do to reach the city? What are we going to do to reach into the poor areas of the city and lead people to Jesus? One of the things we challenge our connect groups with is to uh, once a month have an evangelism campaign. Now, we don't have to do that too much anymore because uh, we, we can't meet together face to face. But I'm sure there will come a day when I'll have to remind you of this teaching. We don't just gather together in our little discipleship groups. We don't just gather together in our little connect groups. We need to be a force of evangelism in this world. If we're going to be like Jesus, we need to seek and save the lost. All right, one more passage, and that's in Proverbs today. Proverbs 19, verse 6. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All right, so you, you find a generous man. This is, this is a life of the generous. Okay. Now remember, generosity is not considered a fault in Scripture. Generosity is considered a virtue in Scripture. And Proverbs says, you know, when you're a generous man, many people seek your favor. When you're a generous man, everybody wants to be friends. Generosity brings friendship. Now, you know, I always hear people want to, to, to use this as a negative. This is not a negative. This is not a negative. This is preached as a negative by stingy people, okay, because they're not generous. But if you're a generous person, this is the promise. One of the things you have to learn is that generosity is a key to friendship. Nobody wants to be a friend of a stingy person. My goodness, no. Well, you know, people are just in the relationship for what they can get from it. No, not at all. But forgive me, if a man wants to court a woman, he needs to show some generosity because your heart follows your treasure. Ah, that's what Jesus said. Your heart follows your treasure. So a man who gives gifts his heart is following his treasure into the lives of his friends. Ah, so you, you don't look upon this like people want to make it look like a negative. This is a positive. If you want friends, be a generous person. And you know what? You're going to find that your heart flows to these people. All a poor man's brothers hate him. So this is family, all right? This is family. How much more do his friends go far from him? All right, so, you know, poverty destroys relationships. Now, why does poverty destroy relationships? Because you're always asking. Notice, he pursues them with words, but does not have them. New Living says, the poor plead with them, but their friends are gone. You're always pursuing people, but forgive me. People get tired of being asked all the time, okay? I mean, sorry. Whoever gets sense <laughs> loves his soul. This is, this is wisdom, all right? This is wisdom. Whoever gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. Now, let's look at that from the New Living. 
That's quite nice. People who cherish understanding will prosper. You'll discover good. See, prosperity is partly about money, but it's much more about other things. It's a life of well-being, okay? You discover good. A false witness will not go unpunished. People who run around telling lies will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will perish. I mean, you, you just, I'm sorry, that's just, that is a promise of God. When a person goes around lying about other people, they, there will be punishment. And it may not come from people, it may come from God. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Now, these are, this, this is one of those lists that you should start. Lists of things that are not right. It's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury. You put a fool in luxury, forgive me, it's just thrown away. Much less for a slave to rule over princes. A person who has a no background, They've never been raised in leadership. They've never been raised in how to treat people properly. You know, when you put people like that in leadership, it's extremely destructive. All right, we're going to stop there today. We'll see you tonight. Hopefully we'll have some more announcements for you tonight regarding the services uh, this weekend. We know we'll have all four Sunday services. We know we'll have a big drive-in service on Saturday morning but we're going to talk to you about some more services on Saturday. Remember, we're only at 10% capacity, so we're going to try to spread everybody out. And also the drive-ins will be available in all four Sunday services. Every service that we have, drive-ins will be available, except at North Campus where we don't have drive-in. We'll see you tonight with more announcements.